Breeden Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Each week, we explore the beliefs shaping our world. This weekend marks the end of Hispanic Heritage Month. But later in October, one very popular festival will be celebrated. It begins at the end of the month, midnight to be exact, the morning of November 1st, and ends two days later. Dios de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. A sign of its popularity right now? Walk into any home decoration store, big box retailers like Target, and you're going to find sugar skulls and other icons associated with the holiday. And that has some raising concerns about businesses engaging in cultural appropriation. You walk into any Walmart and Dia de los Muertos has slowly been pushed onto that shelf along with all the other Halloween stuff. The costumes, the spiders, the cats, the cobwebs. And now something that I thought was a celebration of a holy day for me growing up in in East L.A. has taken on a very commercial process. Recently, Mattel revealed their Day of the Dead Barbie and it sold out instantly. And many are now waiting for Mattel to restock the doll. However, many on Twitter are outraged, unsurprisingly, calling the doll cultural appropriation at its worst. But according to ethnographer Matthew Sandoval, who studies the transborder holiday, there is more to this story. Generally, the argument among Latinos who celebrate Day of the Dead is that like, ah, Day of the Dead is becoming appropriate, is becoming too commercial, et cetera, et cetera. There's never been a time when Day of the Dead was celebrated, even in the indigenous past, where the holiday wasn't deeply and intimately tied to commercialization, either woven into it or commercialization right alongside it. That's part of how it's become popular. That's part of how it's uh, been able to survive from generation to generation. Dr. Matthew Sandoval is an artist and researcher at Arizona State University. The holiday is not just a subject he studies, but one that is meaningful to his own identity and spiritual practice. In his bio, he identifies himself as coming of age as a working class mixed race Chicano. And he argues that critics need more context about the holiday's indigenous history that is often wrongly conflated with Halloween. We will hear more about the spiritual rituals later in the program when we revisit my conversation from last year's festival in Los Angeles on the historic Oliveira Street. But first, on the subject of October and Halloween, we take a closer look at a different ritual associated with the holiday, watching horror movies. I personally am fascinated by the genre, but whenever I queue up The Walking Dead or last year's hit that I'm just now watching, Midnight Mass, my husband heads in the opposite direction. He's not a fan of spooky plots that delve into the supernatural. And that is one that's hard to ignore because the supernatural and symbols of religion are often recurring themes in horror plot stories. On YouTube, Dr. Jonathan Greenaway, a professor of religion and theology, is asking why. And his research is being supported by the Templeton Religious Trust. Let's take a listen. Horror as a cultural form has an amazingly rich symbolic vocabulary. Different themes, styles, objects, tropes, and motifs are all used to create particular effects. The most important one being fear. So much of this symbolic vocabulary is drawn from religion and theology, 
devils, demons and crucifixes are hugely familiar to anyone who enjoys horror. But more widely, we can see that horror is fascinated by ideas which are religious and spiritual. Ghosts, hauntings, even possessions are based on religious and spiritual ideas about ourselves and the nature of our existence. Horror in all of its forms isn't just about the threat of physical suffering, but is about the threat to the soul. And what this raises is an important question. Is horror just a series of scary stories? Or is there something deeper going on that those of us who study religion and theology should be paying attention to? Dr. Greenaway has found some clues and answers. Producer Kimberly Winston spoke to him last fall to learn more. My name is Dr. Jonathan Greenaway. I am currently a researcher in theology and horror at the University of Chester. And I am coming to you from a very grey and very cold Manchester in the north of England. I'm the principal investigator on a project called Gothic Heresy, which is a two-year Templeton Religious Trust-funded research project into how people who engage with horror understand it on a religious or theological level. Let me ask you to define Gothic horror. It is a tradition of culture that emerges in Europe in the late 18th century, reaches a high point in the 19th century with some of the most famous now considered classics of of the literary canon, things like Frankenstein or Dracula, and persists in the massive explosion of horror cinema and other media that we've seen in the 20th and 21st centuries. Now, this is a cultural form which draws on a lot of religious iconography, theme, symbol, and motif. Things like crucifixes, deserted churches, uh, nuns, monks, demons, ghosts, devils, and all All that kind of thing. All that good stuff that we love. All the good stuff. The aim of the project is to establish whether people who enjoy this and engage with it understand those elements to be something other than just kind of aesthetics. You know, is is horror just a series of scary stories or is it speaking to and communicating to those who engage with it on a deeper level? Our initial results from the survey are very encouraging and show that around 40% of people who engage with horror have found it to be something which encourages them to think more about religious or spiritual matters. A very large minority of survey respondents said that in some way, horror, particularly supernatural horror, does reflect their understanding of um, a kind of spiritual or religious reality, even if in some way it exaggerates or brings certain aspects of that uh, to the fore. And virtually none of the people who have responded have said that horror has has nothing to do with religious or spiritual things. Virtually none of the respondents have said, oh, it's just just scary stories. There may be disagreement about exactly what that visual and symbolological language means, but it is clear from our survey results that a pretty large minority of people who engage with it do understand it to have some religious or spiritual significance for them. Is your research leading you to believe that for at least some people, people who watch horror, read horror, in any way consume horror, 
that it in some way helps them deepen their spirituality or their connection to whatever their faith may be? Um, Yes, that certainly seems to be the case for quite a lot of the people who have responded. Some people may see it as disposable, as just straightforward entertainment. Very few people seem to see it as completely disconnected from the spiritual realm. But for those who have a very clear sense of religious uh, or kind of spiritual self-understanding, horror does seem to reinforce and deepen that. Is there anything that your research tells you how that breaks down along faith lines? Is it mostly people who are Christian or Catholic or anything that you can pull out from that at this point? Um, On the one hand, we have people who are interested in things like occult magic, paganism and neo-paganism, their own syncretic and idiosyncratic magical practices. And on the other hand, we have extremely high church Anglican and Catholic respondents. And my supposition is that these are uh, groups of people who are drawn to the uh, to the darker, the gothic, even slightly macabre side of religion. What's interesting is who hasn't responded. So there's been a big gap in particularly American evangelicals responding. Hmm. Um, a kind of a, a big absence. And one of the things I would be really interested to do is do future follow-up research investigating how how horror intersects with that very, very large, very cohesive and very clearly self-identifying religious group. What's been very kind of pleasantly surprising about the survey is the number of people involved in ordained ministry who have responded. Oh, really? Yep. I think, again, there are two things about horror which is so kind of striking and profound for this group of people is its insistence on the kind of non-material existence. You know, this idea that ghosts, demons, devils are in some way kind of metaphysically present. And two, the way in which horror deals with uh, both evil and suffering. Why do you think so many clergy that responded to your survey seem to be attracted to this genre? Does it have to do with confirming or reinforcing their worldview, that there's you know a veil of the supernatural that involves God. I mean, you tell me, why Why do you think clergy are so attracted to this? Well, I think if I had to hazard a guess, and I should emphasize, I think that's what I'm doing. Um, there, That is certainly part of it. But also because some of the bigger questions that they have to reckon with are precisely around things like evil. Why do bad things happen? Mm-hmm. You know, why, why are there monsters in the world? Why is there suffering? You know, what does it mean to go through dark, horrifying events? And how do you come out of the other side of that? Those are the kind of deep pastoral questions that I think a lot of people in ordained ministry have to deal with in their own congregations or the churches or parishes that they're responsible for. And so I think whenever I've spoken to a clergy about working on horror, all of them are fascinated by it because one, horror is exceptionally popular. Uh, Two, it's exceptionally powerful. It has a very big, what we call an affective impact. It it gets to people. And three, Mm. and this is probably the key one for them, is that horror engages with those kind of really deep-seated, very foundational questions. I know most, if not all, of the world's cultures have some form of ghost story or some element of the frightful or the horrible in their oral and written traditions. But horror seems to have really taken root and flourished in the Western imagination. Why is that? 
And does religion play a role in that? I'm not going to speak on all of the world's major religions. I'm not an expert on all of them. But what I am an expert on is the cultural impact of Christianity and how that's explored. And I think one thing that is really uh, very curious, particularly about modern versions of contemporary Christianity, is the way in which there is a desire to expunge the kind of darker side of things. You know, lots of high-profile Christian leaders might love to talk about, you know, blessings and success and the ways in which Christian life can easily be equated with prosperity or virtue. But a lot of Christian tradition and a lot of Christian theology is very uh, drawn to things like the inevitability of suffering, the, the idea of evil as a kind of metaphysical reality that has to be confronted, the idea that uh, you know, the, the main symbol of Christian faith is the crucifix, which is a symbol of death, uh, and specifically a tortured death. I actually think that there is this kind of symbolic impoverishment of Christian religion, which seeks to extract any of the potential negativity, the, the kind of darkness, the, the idea of religion as something wholly positive and wholly sort of benign, reduces it in some way, takes away something of the complexity and mystery that maybe draws people to imaginatively engage with religion in the first place. So what you're saying, if I understand, is that if you strip religion of what we might consider elements of horror, like the crucified body of Christ, the dead body of Christ, that we in some way impoverish religion. That would certainly be my argument. And I know some people might think that that's unnecessarily macabre, but in many ways it's the ultimate reckoning that Christian religion has some uh, capacity to speak into a world that suffers is through its own association with suffering, death, with violence. And I think one of the things that's really valuable about horror is that it encourages people to explore their own fears and their own kind of bodily fragility so if you you go and watch a horror film you know let's say you go and watch something like the exorcist you know there Mm -hmm. is there is an exploration of bodily fragility of of contingency of suffering uh but all of that is redeemed through what i think in some ways a very devoutly catholic religious piece of filmmaking Mm. and i think it is in many ways a mistake to to shy away from horror we live in a in a world that can often seem uh, very violent. It can often seem very um, unfair. And I think horror is a cultural form which allows people to engage with these issues in ways that can be really provocative and raise some really important religious and spiritual questions. Can you flesh that out for me a little bit more? Why do some people seem to enjoy or need or want to be scared out of their mind? Because I certainly don't want to be scared out of my mind. Well, I, I think... One way of thinking about it is, um, let's think about it in a very kind of mundane parallel example, roller coasters. Okay. Roller coasters are designed to be scary. They're designed to be this kind of exciting spectacle. A good horror movie operates on similar kind of physiological stimulus, right? It's designed like a good roller coaster is to, to make you jump, make your heart beat faster, make you feel the kind of rush of adrenaline. On a kind of deeper level, horror is a space in which we explore some of the very worst things that can happen to a person, but it's done in a way that's safe. There's the distance of the screen. So this isn't happening to you, but by observing, by being drawn into the participation of spectatorship, 
we can kind of wrestle with the possibilities of what what how would we respond if we were in in serious danger you know if we were haunted if we were chased if we were in danger of death or, or bodily harm horror is a way of exploring the very worst that can happen and i think uh the reason that people might want to do that is you know we've all had a phone call that maybe someone that we care about has been hurt suddenly the world becomes a kind of different place you know things that we thought were important or thoughts and stresses that we were worried about that day fly out of the window and we we become reminded of what it is that we truly value mm. and i think in some way there is an element in horror to which that is part of it yes there is spectacle some people go and see them because they they enjoy them just like you would a roller coaster but also for for quite a large proportion of people there are elements to which horror allows us to wrestle with and confront some very deep human questions of existence. And are they the same questions that religions have long grappled with? Precisely, yeah. Questions of suffering, questions of the existence of the supernatural or, or forces beyond the merely physical, you know, mm. questions of, uh, of good and evil. Horror is notable as one of very few genres, I think, that takes evil quite seriously. Questions of, you know, being saved, what does that mean? And that can be as kind of obvious and on the nose equivalent to religion as something like Reagan's story in The Exorcist, where this little girl is literally saved by the self-sacrificial love of a Catholic priest. Or it can be a little more abstract. You know, what does it mean to be a survivor? If you encounter a monster, how does that change you? And I think even though the aesthetic differences are very stark between religion and horror, those are some of the key questions to religious experience. So what's the next stage of your research? What we're going to be doing is we're going to be sitting down and talking with people. Um, the survey was very widely distributed, um, but it's now time for us to find people who would like to uh, tell us about their own religious understanding and the ways in which horror plays into that for them. It might be people who are Anglican or Catholic. It might be people who have no religious affiliation. It might be people who have their own uh, neo-pagan or magical practices and ask them to uh, just to explore collectively how their own engagement with horror is informed by or helps shape their religious sense of things. Secondly, what we're going to do is we're going to sit down with some people who think that horror has had a decisive impact or has changed their religious uh, perspective in some way. And that might be people who were committed to a religious organization or denomination and have now left it. It might be people who have found uh, horror to be very religiously or spiritually meaningful for them, which has brought them into a kind of religious tradition. And we're going to basically uh, have a chance to explore the ways in which horror has been a kind of formative influence for people. That's Dr. Jonathan Greenaway from the University of Chester talking about his two-year study of horror and religion. When we come back, Producer Kimberly Winston and Dr. Greenaway discuss his favorite films, television shows, and books where the scary and the sacred combine. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. 
I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. And you're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. This week, religion reporter Kimberly Winston is taking a closer look at how the genre of films that play into our fears about evil can shed light on how we wrestle with beliefs. She is speaking to Dr. Jonathan Greenaway from the University of Chester about his academic work, The Unlikely Intersection of Religion and Horror. Now, before the break, Dr. Greenaway covered the ways the horror genre can explore the very same questions religion grapples with, like why does evil exist and where is the divine when people suffer? As the conversation continues, she asks Dr. Greenaway to recommend some good and not too gruesome examples of when horror and religion meet. Let's get back to the interview. John. It's autumn and it's going to be Halloween and it just feels spooky outside. I've got three owls in my backyard who Mm -hmm. creep me out every night with their hooting. It's just a time of year when I start thinking about more spooky things. So if you were to give me a list of your favorite movies, television shows, books, that in some way embody the intersection of religion and spirituality with horror, what are your favorites? What would you recommend? Let's start with a movie. If you're not a great one for horror movies, then I think you really can't go wrong with James Whale's 1931 adaptation of Frankenstein. Ooh. There's an incredible scene where Frankenstein himself says, I know what it feels like to be God. I won't say any more. Yes, it might be a little cheesy, it might be a little hokey in places, but it was still absolutely groundbreaking at the time and is in many ways a really deeply moving piece of cinema. But if you're not much of a horror film fan, as I know lots of people aren't, but you would like to maybe start to find your way into this very interesting mode of culture... I think starting with a classic is a great way to go. 
It's a little more manageable. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's one. Give me another one. What's What's your personal favorite movie that deals with these, this intersection? It might be a cliche for people, but there are two which um, people who work in my field will talk about, and we will talk about them endlessly because they're so rewarding, which is uh, 1973's The Wicker Man and the classic William Friedkin film, The Exorcist. Yes, yes. You know my story of The Exorcist, right? My mother took <laughs> me to see it when I was, I think I was the same age as Reagan in the film. And I sat there with my hands over my eyes for the whole film, and my mother just giggled at me. And I'm sure, I'm sure this is why I don't like horror. I mean, it might, it might well be. They're, they're, t- <laughs> they're, two, they're two very different films, but they are two intensely religious even theological films. Mm. The Exorcist is is honestly just... Uh, every film fan will always say they have one film they think is uh, kind of perfect. And I think I think The Exorcist is sort of a perfect film. It is, uh, it is very scary. It's constantly surprising. It's a very Catholic film. The Wicker Man, which strangely comes out in the same year, is in some ways a lot stranger. Um, it's very interested in the resurgence of paganism in, in Britain. It has a devoutly Calvinist Scottish police officer who finds himself in a very strange new world that they're not at all comfortable in. And of course has a, a truly iconic performance uh, by Christopher Lee in that film. Parthenogenesis. What? <laughs> Literally a reproduction without sexual union. Oh, what is all this? I mean, you, you, you've got fake, fake, fake biology, fake religion. Sir, have these children never heard of Jesus? Himself the son of a virgin, impregnated, I believe, by a ghost. Do I remember this movie also, maybe from when I was a kid, they actually construct a wicker man and put people in it and burn it? Yes, that is correct. Uh, it has an incredible soundtrack as well. It has a great score. It is one of the founding films of what now gets referred to as folk horror. You talked about The Exorcist. You mentioned the soundtrack, and you said that that is a perfect film. It is a fabulous film, as much as I could never watch it again. That soundtrack... I remember feeling that it was shot in a way that was very claustrophobic, it was very tight in that room and intimate between the priest and the devil inside the little girl. Yes, it's it's desperately cramped. The scenes which are filmed inside Reagan's bedroom, you'll see the priest talking and you can see their breath in the air. And it's because it was so cold because of what the director had chosen to do. Now, the, the way the director behaved on set, I, I absolutely can't condone because to make it feel so real, Friedkin essentially tortured his actors linda blair who plays reagan nearly ended up with a broken spine uh from the harness but all of it adds up to give it this sense of truthfulness it is he who commands you he who flung you from the heights of heaven to the depths of hell in the name of the father and of the son and the holy spirit the thing that people remember about the exorcist is that it feels very real Mm. It, it doesn't ever lapse into something fantastic, something kind of safe. You know, everything about it feels very real. It's a film that still is in, intensely powerful. I'm surprised you didn't mention Rosemary's Baby. 
Um, if I had to pick another one from that era, I would have picked Rosemary's <laughs> Baby. There is one modern film that I would like to talk about as well, but Rosemary's Baby is is extremely interesting, uh, if only for one shot in the film, which is a cover of Time magazine gets picked up. And it's the famous cover of Time magazine that asks the question, is God dead? I remember that now. Yes, yes. And of course, this was Time writing a story about the uh, emergence of what's called death of God theology right. in uh, American Christianity. But it's such a, an interesting detail to be included in film, which is, well, if God is dead, Satan certainly isn't. And Satan is busy bringing forth children. That's movies. Tell me about TV. You tell me what you would recommend our listeners watch as a good example of this intersection of religion and horror, spirituality and horror on television. Well, happily for me, perhaps a perfect example has just been released, which is Mike Flanagan's uh, Netflix series, Midnight Mass. It's intensely interesting. So Flanagan is a horror writer and director and is always also very clearly very interested in religion, was raised Catholic, raised in an, an environment quite happily. You know, the church was a place that was very interesting, a place to ask questions. This is a show about a very, very insular, uh, very pious community that is mourning the sudden disappearance of the parish priest when a newcomer arrives to the island. It's fabulously acted. It has an excellent sense of pace. Behold. Lo, lo and behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. faith brothers and sisters i would not make you see what you have seen i would not ask you to choose what you may choose without first showing you god's messenger and an angel of the lord appeared to them on the right side of the altar of incense and when zachariah saw him he was terrified and overcome with fear there are some really interesting, explicit conversations about faith, about inter-religious dialogue, about the role of religion in public life, about dealing with grief and guilt and addiction, and dealing with as much as horror often does this. Horror, horror. everyone thinks that horror is really about being afraid, but horror in many ways is about dealing with grief. Hmm. Ghosts are not necessarily monsters. Ghosts can be memories, right? So horror is is very much about exploring the melancholy as well as the terrifying and i think this is maybe another reason why people don't like it um because it brings us back to the things that are our own kind of personal psychological griefs and traumas okay what about my favorite penny dreadful oh what a fun show what a fun show <laughs> penny dreadful tell me about my favorite show what's really fun about penny dreadful is that it was um really at the boom of what we call neo-victorianism which is where we have, as I said, instead of trying to create new monsters, we go back to the, the heyday of the 19th century, where Penny Dreadfuls were cheap, easily produced, mass market fiction, uh, usually quite lurid, full of, full of blood and guts and violence and all other kinds of illicit things that you really weren't supposed to be reading. But again, enormously popular. And so uh, Penny Dreadful, the show, is basically a restaging of some of the kind of classic monsters and horrifying elements of 19th century literature in a very slick kind of package really really interesting vampires in penny dreadful i think that's probably the bit that's the most interesting to me 
I loved the women characters in mm. Penny Dreadful. I thought they did just a, an amazing job of exploring what it was like to be a woman at that time, the horror of being a woman at, at that time. I loved that show. And then my new favorite, The Walking Dead. Now, The Walking Dead's a really interesting show. The zombie, as a figure, is probably the definitive monster of the modern age. Now, that's a religious figure as well. It emerges out of Caribbean religious practices and Vudan, which was then written about in the early 1900s and brought back uh, to Europe. One of the earliest zombie films is a Bela Lugosi film called White Zombie, which is about a sugar plantation that is using zombies as a cheap, inexhaustible source of labor. Oh, my God. There is this, there's a kind of political element to the zombie as well, but we shouldn't elide the fact that it has its roots in Caribbean religious uh, magic and folk practices. So The Walking Dead is interesting mostly because it's a show that strikes me as quite nihilistic. The famous line is, you know, who are the Walking Dead? Are we talking about the hordes of, of zombies? No, we're talking about the people who have survived. So really, it's nihilism is not a rejection of meaning. Nihilism is the wrestling with the collapse of meaning. So in a world without hope, what do you do? How do you go on? It is about this kind of challenge of what does it mean to be human, right? If you strip away all the kind of metaphysical niceties, what are we? What are we left with? What is the ground for hope? We face dire challenge and chance. Our lives. Our way of life. It hangs in the balance. We will fight. And we will bleed. And yet I smile. For we will mine glory from the rock of struggle this day. We will honor and protect this, this bastion of life in a land of the dead. And we will win. You trust the king, we will win. It's quite a challenging show if you, if you choose to engage with it on those terms. Because for all of its problems, it does take seriously the idea that we are not just physical things, right? There is something within us that wants us to keep going. Even though we might know, we might rationally know that there's no hope. Uh, we, you know, we are the walking dead. What does that mean? What does it mean to to sort of become something other than, you know, what we might think of as being human? Mm-hmm. You recommended to me a book called The Loney, and I forget who that is by. That is the debut novel by British writer called Andrew Michael Hurley. It's a book that is about the, a crisis of faith, as a lot of horror writing and a lot of horror generally tends to be. What if you went looking for a miracle and you actually found one is the crux of the story. But it's a miracle that didn't come from a power that you knew, but came from a source that seems a bit darker and a little more terrifying. All right. That's the Loney. Any other books that you would recommend? I think that you can't go wrong by reading some 19th century Gothic writing. If you've never read it, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is without peer. It is... Yeah. Um, it is scary. It is beautiful. The The monster that is terrifying, not because it isn't like you, but because it is a creature that can speak rationally and eloquently, as well as terrify. If you haven't read it or haven't read it in a while, the other thing that I would I would definitely recommend is Bram Stoker's Dracula, a deeply weird novel, probably nothing like you remember, but it is very ambitious, very strange in places. And uh, its presentation of the vampire is, is not the original 
presentation of vampires. Vampires were part of 19th century literature for a long time before then. But it is the definitive one. It is the one that we have been drawing from and reworking and reimagining for for over a century. Dr. Jonathan Greenaway is a researcher in theology and horror at the University of Chester in Manchester, England. Visit interfaithradio.org to find Dr. Greenaway's reading recommendations, along with a link to Horror as Religious Experience. That's a video on YouTube where you can learn more about his work. Coming up, an indigenous syncretic festival takes on a new meaning in the wake of a pandemic. It gave Indigenous peoples a sense of healing. It also gave them some sense of closure, some understanding, and also an ability to know that they had an annual ritual that they could return to so that their dead were never fully forgotten. Ethnographer and third-generation Chicano Matthew Sandoval describes how the annual Dia de los Muertos festival centers Indigenous ceremonies that heal and bring community together. That's coming up after this short break. You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. (laughs) 